Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our first sponsor today is Navy Hair Care. I have been working with Navy Hair Care since they launched back in 2018. At that time, I was about a year postpartum with our third child, and my hair was experiencing some trouble after some significant postpartum hair loss. Navy really helped to strengthen my hair, and I noticed a big difference about one to two months after using it regularly. With biotin, vitamins, and rosemary oil, this shampoo and conditioner combo has been part of my daily routine for years now. I also use the charcoal mask every one to two weeks to help revitalize my hair. It helps to dry out toxins, heavy metals, and impurities, which we have plenty of since we have well water. This mask will leave your hair feeling incredibly soft and lightweight. You can use the code Lindsay, L-Y-N-Z-Y, for 30% off your order. And I will leave the links to the products I mentioned within the show notes. Hello everyone. Today I'll be chatting with Nate and Kaylee Klemp. Nate and Kaylee are authors of the New York Times Editor's Choice selection, The 80-80 Marriage, a new model for a happier, stronger marriage. Nate is a founding partner at Mindful Magazine and also the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Start Here, master the lifelong habit of well-being. Kaylee is one of the nation's leading experts on small group dynamics and leadership development, a TED speaker, and the author of three other books, including the Amazon bestseller, The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership, The Drama-Free Office, and 13 Guidelines for Effective Teams. In today's episode, we will talk about the common traps that modern couples fall into, the issues with the 50-50 model of marriage, how to create connection and better communicate with your partner, and much more. Let's dive in. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode, this podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Welcome to the show, Nate and Kaylee Klemp. I'm so excited to have you guys on today. So excited. So good to be here. So I would love to start off. Well, first, we were chatting about this before we started that I found you originally through people in my community when I was signing offline last year. And I said, you know, I still want to be connected to certain newsletters that might be helpful. And a bunch of people recommended your newsletter and then recommended your website and all of that. So that's originally how I found you. And then we kind of connected through that via email. So it's kind of cool that you're finally on the podcast. Full circle. Such a yes. cool way to be connected. 
Yes. So I think we should start off. Both of you are just so very well educated and and have such a great background. And I would love to know what connected you to to want to write this book, this 80-80 managed book, and just what kicked it all off for you? What made you passionate about this? Yeah, well, I can take this one. For us, really, this book was born out of our own experience. So we had this very almost like fairy tale meeting. So we met in high school. We were high school sweethearts. And we started dating at 17 and then broke up for seven years, got back together. And it was all like this Instagram worthy, perfect story, right? And then we actually got married and things got really hard. And we were not at all expecting that. We were actually on the verge of divorce. And so for the decade or so after that, we were really thinking carefully about what exactly is happening here to us, but more broadly, what's happening to our generation? You know, we're the first generation in all of human history where the aspiration is egalitarian marriage, where the idea is, hey, how can we be equals and in love? And so we thought, you know, this is really actually quite interesting. And there are a lot of great marriage books out there. And we we enjoy those books and we learn from those books, but we felt like there needed to be a framework and a mindset for couples like us that were trying to navigate how to be equals, but also how to run a life with kids and all of the crazy logistics and just, you know, the, the craziness of modern life, basically. So that was really what inspired us to jump into this project. And we ended up interviewing about a hundred people and then obviously writing the book, The 8080 Marriage. And so did you have a, a, a process for interviewing these people or did you just randomly select couples or did you kind of, were you looking for specific people? Well, the process was really one of trying to find as much variety as we could. So we wanted to have a good cross-section of people from different ethnic backgrounds, but also We interviewed a number of same-sex couples. We interviewed people from all varieties of political persuasion. You know, the idea was just we wanted to get inside the conditions of modern marriage. And it was really actually cool. You know, if you interview couples, you kind of feel like for 30 minutes, you have this inside view of of what's normally a very private thing. So, So we actually felt like we could really understand the different kind of atmospheres of these various couples by by doing that process and learned a lot through it. I know. I was just going to say, you probably learned so much about your own marriage through interviewing all of these people. And it's been yeah, fascinating. Absolutely. Yeah. So tell me more about what you learned throughout all of this and and how did you come up with this? First of all, what what did you think the problem was with the 50-50 model after interviewing everybody? And then what kind of brought you into, I know this is going to be kind of an extended question. What made you think, okay, no, this needs to be 80-80 and what does that mean? As we interviewed couples, we started to notice that there were really two different pieces that couples that were really struggling were consistently struggling with and couples that were really thriving were consistently thriving about. The, f- the first piece was their mindset, that through the interviews, we really got to understand that couples that were struggling were in this mindset of 50-50 fairness. They were keeping score. They were keeping track. And 
it was really interesting that if we asked couples, hey, do you struggle with fairness? They'd be like, no. And then they would tell us stories of, and by the way, I'm the only one who gets up with the kiddos if they're up between two and four in the, in, you know, in the middle of the night. And that's, that's not fair. Or they would say, you know, I feel like I'm not appreciated for how much work it takes just to have life function versus, you know, it's so much easier to do whatever the other thing is where you could start to see they were comparing how much they were contributing, how hard they were trying, who cared more. And the couples that got caught in that mindset really struggled. In contrast, the couples that were really thriving had this mindset of generosity where they were sort of looking at their partner through these glasses of contribution. What can I do that my partner would really appreciate? And also appreciation. What are they doing that I really appreciate? And can I make that explicit? And so mindset was really that first pillar. And the second piece was around the structure of their relationship. And through the interviews and through our writing, it was really interesting to notice every couple has priorities, has roles. But what we noticed is the couples that were struggling, those were accidental. That could be historical accident. Oh, I'm just doing the things that my mom did. Or I'm just doing the things that my grandmother did. Whereas the couples that were really intentional, that did the work to sit down and write out their values and get clear on what are the priorities that are in service of those values and how do we want to divide our roles not by accident or by fighting, but based on what we care about and what we're good at, that that intentionality was the other piece that really differentiated these couples. And so the numbers was this foil, the couples that were striving for 50-50 fairness fought. And the couples that were engaged in 80-80 radical generosity and a structure that facilitated shared success, they were thriving. That's so interesting. So did you coin the 80-80 type phrase? Was that you? That was us. Uh, That's amazing. Our our math is not that good. (laughs) We recognize that 160% doesn't exist, but isn't that the point of love that it kind of doesn't make sense and that's part of what makes it beautiful? Yeah. No, I mean, I just love the concept of it all. Like, I mean, you're so right. I mean, I think a lot of people listening will totally think back to quite a few times where for so many years, especially when we first had kids, I was always like, well, I just did this. So it's your turn to do that. Right. And you just fall into, I mean, life is so incredibly hard. I mean, marriage is hard without children. You add children in there and there are just so many responsibilities that both of you need to work out and figure out who's doing what. It's so stressful, right? And it's so stressful and it it can be hard not to think this way, right? Where if you think, if you truly think that you're doing a lot of the work and you're like, okay, you need to do X, Y, and Z. It's like you fall into that 50-50 trap so much, right? So if I'm somebody that that's falling into this 50-50 trap, Nate, how do I kind of change my mindset and think more 80-80? Yeah. Well, first of all, I just want to name something you brought up that's so important. 
where you were saying, once you have kids, there's like this fundamental shift. And that is really important because what we found through coaching couples and through our interviews is that you can kind of get away with living two somewhat separate lives before you have kids. But then you add kids into the picture and all of a sudden you have this radical project that's shared, which is to, to keep a human being alive, you know, and, and, and raise this person, right. And thrive. And, and so that, that becomes a shared project. And so inevitably now you're, you're caught in a new kind of structure where you have to work together to your question though, about like, how do you shift out of 50, 50? What does that mean exactly? I think the first piece of that shift is about awareness. So as Kaylee mentioned, a lot of couples we encounter are fighting about fairness. They're keeping that mental scorecard of all the wonderful things they do, comparing that against what their partner probably isn't doing, and, and they're doing it unconsciously. So it's, it's happening just kind of in the background below the radar of awareness. So step one is really about noticing you know, and just just seeing that pattern unfold in real time. And once you've noticed, now you've opened up room for a choice. And that's where making the shift to AD80 is really about thinking about a couple different tools you can use in those moments. So one of the tools is about contribution. You know, the, the whole idea of AD80 is centered on this idea of radical generosity. And I think kind of the essence of generosity is these acts of contribution we can do for our partner. And some people get kind of intimidated by that, but contribution doesn't need to be like this massive thing. You don't need to plan a trip to Fiji. It could be as simple as a note on their computer that says, I love you, right? It could take 10 seconds. But then there's also this piece around appreciation, which is part of this 80-80 mindset where we're sort of flipping our ordinary glasses of looking for all the things our partner is doing wrong and instead seeing if we can find the things that they're doing well or the ways they're contributing and then appreciating them for that with just a a simple thank you. So those are two of the ways we can shift, but it really does all start with awareness because often we're so busy, we're so stressed, our mind is wandering to so many distant places that we just don't even notice. I think there's a really interesting piece on the awareness too, which is this notion in psychology of availability bias, that our awareness of what we're doing versus what our partner is doing is totally flawed. Basically, the availability bias is a fancy way of saying, I know all the wonderful things that I do, but when it comes to what you're doing, it's a little fuzzy. From the perspective of like, I am intimately familiar with every diaper that I change, every load of laundry that I do, every meal that I fix, but I actually literally slept through you getting up in the middle of the night to get ice water for one of the kiddos. And so that is not part of my mental calculation. And so in that, it's wildly unfair because I'm not playing straight. Right. And so adding to what you had said, Nate, like... I feel like the second you start to recognize, right, that naturally we're just inclined to think about, you know, what we're doing, right? Like I, 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 I'm doing this, I'm doing that. But once you start to recognize, oh, my partner's also doing this, A, B, and C, and saying thank you and recognizing those things, it encourages that behavior as opposed to, right, like, so as opposed to saying, well, you didn't do 
the dishes today and you didn't do, you left this here and ignoring kind of the other things that had happened that they did do. So instead of kind of slapping them on the wrist and saying, well, you didn't do this, encouraging what they did do, it encourages them in the long run to do more, right? I mean, I I would hope that would that would kind of be like psychologically what would happen. So if you're telling your partner, thank you so much. I, I appreciated that you did. I saw you put that load of laundry in. I also saw you, you made breakfast for everybody this morning. That was so helpful for me. And that's just going to say, oh, wow. Like, I, I can't believe that came out of nowhere. Like that, that was so nice that she recognized that I, I did all those things. And in turn, I want to do more of those things, right? Like if, if something seems to be bothering you, I feel like, you just feed off of, I mean, everybody does off of positive feedback, you know, instead of negative. It definitely creates a virtuous cycle. I think it's helpful to remember that most of the time we're trying our best. And I don't know about you, Lindsay, but my mind reading skills are very subpar. And so exactly as you're saying, when some, you know, when Nate says to me, Wow, that was so helpful. It do, it lets me know. Oh, he values that. I want to do more of that. Versus things where I think I'm being helpful, but it actually wasn't. And so that level of communication and appreciation, it does. It creates a virtuous cycle. It creates encouragement to do more, and it gets contagious in a really good way. You know, you can tell me with your interviewing, I just feel like it's very hard when you fall into this, we've been married for 10 plus years. I mean, I'm just throwing a number out there. We've been married for all these years. And and that kind of stuff just goes to the wayside, right? Like my husband always makes us omelets in the morning. Like I would say six out of seven days. Okay. And I've become so accustomed to it. Some days I don't even say thank you. I just take it. I eat it and I go, right? We're busy. We've got the kids. Everything's going crazy. But it's it's stuff like that. I feel like that we can't forget, right? Because that's when you kind of fall into that, that mindset of not being thankful. And your partner's just trying so hard you know, to do these little things here and there. And if you're married for a long time, it, it's like you don't recognize those things as much anymore, right? So it's like so important to take a step back and say, oh my God, like, let me actually look and see what they're doing. I, I, because you just fall into the day-to-day and it's it's hard sometimes, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And you're pointing to something that was actually really interesting that we discovered in researching this book and talking to couples, which is that most couples just fall into these unconscious habits. And you mentioned roles, your your husband who makes omelets every day. Well, we would ask a lot of couples, like, how did you decide who does what in your relationship? And they would kind of look at us and be like, I don't know. We just kind of winged it. And we actually turned that into a technical term because we heard it so much. We call it the wing it approach. And that's the approach we use. It's the approach almost every couple uses where, you know, like we talked to one guy who's like, I'm the toothbrush guy. I have no idea why, but when it comes to like my daughter getting ready for bed, I'm the one who brushes her teeth, right? Mm-hmm. And, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but there's an opportunity there because sometimes things that happen by accident aren't really the best structure, right? Or they're sort of infused with gender inequalities that are a holdover from the 1950s, for example. So like the opportunity here is to take a step back and to say, hey, maybe this isn't the best structure. And what if we were to look at what we're good at, what we like to do, 
you know, things we could outsource that neither of us like to do and just sort of see the whole system with fresh eyes. You know, this is one of the exercises we actually have in the book where you can just sort of take that step back and all of a sudden design something that's more intentional, that's more efficient, that, that you like, that, that works better for both of you. And, and we just forget about that because, right, we're so busy and there's so much going on and, and it totally makes sense. But, but that's the opportunity here, I think. Right. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about that. I, I think maybe both of you could maybe touch on this. So, so say you have, you know, some of these couples that you met with and, and they're very much about this 50, 50 approach and, and they're not seeing it clearly. What would be your first steps for those couples to kind of take to, to kind of broaden how they're thinking about marriage? Step number one, we would remind them that any conversation about your relationship and your roles has to be rooted in a mindset of generosity. Because other, if we get into a mindset of fairness or litigation, we're stuck. So from this place with your glasses on of creativity, appreciation, generosity, step number one is to take a step back as a couple and ask, what is this chapter of our lives about? And we call this naming your values. And it was so interesting in our interviews. It's not like there are good values and bad values. There are just different values. So one couple that we interviewed, their primary value was adventure. And they lived in a van and traveled around the world. Whereas in our family, the priority is around creating impact and creating safety for our family. And it's a lot about our family unit because our daughter's 10, like these are precious years. So some families said the priority is about family, is about raising our kiddos, is about, you know, whatever it is, creating a a foundation. Other couples that we interviewed might've been in a different phase of life and said, our value right now is philanthropy. The point of this is to say, The first step is to know what's your North Star? What are your values? Because then you can make really wise choices from an aligned place. Nate, you want to talk about how that becomes priorities and roles? Yeah. I mean, the basic idea there is like once you have that clarity, then all of a sudden there's sort of a a guiding principle where you can start to think about, okay, if what we really value is creating wealth or adventure or whatever that might be, then what are our priorities? You know, what, what are the things we should be saying yes to? And maybe even more importantly, what are the things we should be saying no to? Cause you know, for most couples in this modern era, there's just so many invitations and demands and relatives and in-laws and coworkers, right? There's so much coming in. If you say yes to everything, all of a sudden you live this life that's, you know, kind of strung out and and not really aligned with what you want. So so those are some of the key moves that I think couples can begin to make. Now, a quick little break to tell you about one of my favorite bedding and loungewear brands, Cozy Earth. This episode is sponsored by Cozy Earth. Cozy Earth sheets allow us to feel like we are sleeping on top of the clouds every night. Their luxury bedding is made with premium 100% viscous from bamboo fabric and helps create the perfect sleeping temperature. They're comfortable and breathable, and they're great for sleeping year-round. Cozy Earth has developed and crafted high-quality goods with responsibly and sustainably sourced materials from the earth. 
Cozy Earth Women's Loungewear is crafted from the same breathable and luxurious material as their bedding, and they offer optimal comfort. All of their products are created via a direct supply chain and in ethical factories. Fun fact, Cozy Earth has been featured on Oprah's favorites list four years in a row, and they have a 10-year warranty on all of their products. Cozy Earth provided an exclusive code for my listeners today. 35% off site-wide when you use the code Lindsay. That's L-Y-N-Z-Y. Go to CozyEarth.com and use the code Lindsay, L-Y-N-Z-Y, for 35% off. The code will also be in my show notes. This podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp. Sometimes when you are stressed or anxious, it can make you feel stuck. I know for myself, I can oftentimes perseverate on an issue at hand rather than look for solutions. A therapist can really help you find solutions rather than focusing on the problem. A few years ago, I did just that. I made an appointment with a therapist and it allowed me to see everything from a different lens and find different solutions. I am less stressed and less anxious as a result. I truly believe that everyone can benefit from having a therapist to talk to. If you are thinking about trying therapy, BetterHelp is a great option that is readily available from the comforts of your home. You will get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey and you can switch therapists at any time. If you want to try it out, my listeners can get 10% off their first month with the link in my show notes. That website link is betterhelp.com slash Lindsay. That's L-Y-N-Z-Y. That's 10% off your first month of therapy at betterhelp.com slash Lindsay. L-Y-N-Z-Y. Now, if you have a partner and there's something that's been bothering you for a long time, what is the best way to be bringing something like that up so that you're presenting an inviting conversation as opposed to kind of blaming that person, you know, or, or making them feel ashamed or angry? How can you present it? such that like, say you want to bring up, okay, I really need help doing all of the carpooling with the kids. It's too much for me. You aren't around. I can't. So like, how would you approach these, these intimate conversations about just gender roles in in general, and then also just like handling all of the everyday activities that have to happen within the household? One of the practices that we think is so important that you're naming right now is called reveal and request. And there's actually two different versions of revealing. One that we'll talk about right now is exactly this experience of, hey, there's something that's been bothering me. Likely it's been happening for a little while. And the idea of revealing is to keep it about your experience first and then to make it a request. So it's not you're never around, you're taking me for granted. This is such, it's instead kind of where you started. Hey, there's something that's been going on where I'd love your help. What's going on for me is I feel overwhelmed. I feel like I I don't know how to get the kids all the different places that they need to go. And as I struggle with that, I notice that I'm starting to feel resentful and I I don't want to feel that way. And then to make the request, are you willing to, and then you could be creative. Are you willing to help me with the carpooling? Are you willing to help me find some other families that we could dovetail with? Are you, are you willing to be a thought partner with me so that we can get our kiddos where they need to go without me feeling like I'm failing all the time? 
So that reveal and request so that they know this, this isn't a blame game. This is, here's what's going on inside. I'd love your help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think half the time, at least in my own marriage, it's, again, they can't read your mind. <laughs> they don't know that you're struggling with something. I mean, I can't even, I can't even count the times my husband's like, Linz, like, I, what? Like, I, I, I had no idea. Like I'm, I, you need to tell me these things, you know? So maybe we can briefly talk about this too, because I think I read this, maybe it was in one of your newsletters or just kind of all the things that happen on a day-to-day basis, little things that drive you insane. And then kind of having those compound over, you know, either days or weeks or years and never bringing them up. And then it just kind of like explodes. So kind of like the, let's talk about like the importance of just that open communication with your partner and kind of how to do that on a, on a day to day. Yeah. Well, I think one way we could talk about this is through a story. So we talked to one couple where the man and the couple had an affair. He met a woman on Facebook and it was incredibly destabilizing. They managed to stay together. But in the aftermath of that affair, they spent a lot of time trying to figure out what happened. And there wasn't a major catastrophic event. It wasn't like, you know, there was a big diagnosis or a big change in work or anything like that. The only thing they could see is that over the course of several years, there were all of these little micro ruptures in their connection. And taken in isolation, each of those things were pretty insignificant, right? It was just like one of those little arguments you have in the kitchen that you sweep under the rug and it goes away, right? But but if you take them all together in the aggregate, there was so much distance that was created that all of a sudden something unthinkable could happen. And I think that's really the way it works in relationships is that if you have those moments of disconnection or misunderstandings or hurt feelings that taken alone are really quite minor and not a big deal, when you're not revealing those and they're just sort of swept under the rug and the resentment continues to to sort of like stay with you, there's just a way in which really big conflicts can start to emerge over time. So that's why there's this kind of hygiene, you know, that that can be uncomfortable and difficult. And really the big barrier there is discomfort. When we talk to most couples, they say like, Ah, it just it feels so uncomfortable to say mm. I have something to reveal and to do yeah. this, and, and it's <laughs> yeah. like yes, it is uncomfortable, but it's much less uncomfortable than having a divorce or right. having one of you have an affair, right? So, so there's there's a practice there that's about kind of leaning into that temporary discomfort that's mild, so that you can turn those moments into an opportunity for connection, and really, then all the bad things that happen and the misunderstandings they become these opportunities to grow together and to get closer. And you're kind of like flipping the whole momentum of the system on its head. Right. So is there anything that you both would suggest? Like, do you think it's it's best to try to have that connection daily where you're having this, you just make time for it, whether maybe some days it's in the morning, maybe some days it's at night, but at least it's once a day where you're connecting and and talking through maybe what might be bothering you or what was great about the day. Or do you suggest, is it, you know, weekly? What do, what do, you, what do you think is best for couples? There are, yeah, I, I love this question because there's actually different habits on different time bases. So absolutely, we think there's a micro habit around a daily connection 
And the key is to make sure that your daily connection is actually connected. So if you're both sitting on the couch while sort of watching a TV show and simultaneously scrolling Instagram, that's not actually connected time. (laughs) (laughs) And and I I love what you were saying too, Lindsay, that it, it isn't just, hey, and in this five minutes that we set aside every day, we're going to talk about all the ways that we've bothered each other. But instead, it becomes a time to really look forward to what happened in your day that feels inspiring? What happened in your day that was frustrating? Keeping connection with each other. This is a bit of an aside. I happen to be in Germany right now. And because of the time zones, having longer conversations has been really hard the last five days. And it was really interesting that today, Nate and I set aside time to make sure that we connected. And even just four days later, he had been thinking about things that as he revealed them, I was like, wow, a lot's happened in your world that I missed just being away. And that's, I think, sort of a micro story of if you don't have that daily connection for a long, long, long period of time, not just four days, but like days, weeks, months, up, maybe years, you just, you don't really know the inner world of your partner anymore. And that, that's where I think longer things like having a weekly date night and date night, we are huge advocates of the date hike. So we're not as great at making sure that we have, you know, dinner, dinner and a movie, but reliably every Saturday morning, you'll find the two of us out on a trail having a longer conversation about what's really going on with you and what's important to you. And that ritual of staying connected in a longer way enhances those five minute micro connections. Mm. Okay, so I definitely want to dive more into date night. Before I do that, though, I just wanted to make just a point. It's it's like you talk to your children. We have dinner every night. We try to have dinner every night together, right? And so some of the questions we ask our kids are, okay, is there anything that bothered you at school today or something that made you sad or upset or angry? You know, and then we counter that with what was your favorite part of your day? You know, what did you do? And kind of diving into that experience for them. But it's the same thing. I, I feel like once you have kids, you kind of forget all of that. Like, oh, my partner doesn't need that. They're an adult. Like, you know what I mean? Like they can fend for themselves. But but it's like almost like having that same conversation, right? Like I would love for someone to ask me, hey, is there anything that, you know, made you really frustrated today? And oh, what was the highlight of your day? Like, that's kind of fun yes. for someone to ask me that really? as an adult, but you, you don't think about it. You ask your kids that all the time, but yeah. I anyway. think it's really cool modeling for our kiddos to see the parents answer those questions mm. as well. So the variation in our house on Rosebud Thorn, I can't remember who we learned this from, is that we do, what was your poopsicle, which was basically like, what was your thorn? What was your popsicle, (laughs) which is your rose? And then, you know, what was your, what's your dreamsicle, which is the bud. And it's, it's funny, Rosebud Thorn didn't stick, but poop, pop, dreams. Of course it did. Poop poop sticks for everything. Come on. Right. So the dinner conversation was enhanced, but it isn't just for the kids to answer. It's Nate and I answer as well. And it's interesting that sometimes what the follow-up conversation for just the two of us later in the evening starts from, wait, tell me more about that dream Mm. that you have. Or wait, I I didn't realize how hurtful that situation was that was in your poopsicle. Mm. (laughs) Tell me more. 
Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's that is great. I mean, we always ask our kids, but I I think well, I think we've done that a few times, but it's definitely not a regular occurrence that we're also answering. But I think that's great. Okay, so let's let's dive back really quick to date night because you talk a lot about this. I would love to talk about what you've discovered scientifically that proves that date night can kind of connect you both more and better than ever before. And just focusing in on, you know, how to make it a priority. I think so many couples, like you said, they're stuck in this, like, well, I don't have time for that. Like I don't have time or I don't have any babysitters. I can't leave my house. So what's the purpose? So I'd love for you both to touch on that. Nate, if you want to start. Well, we have this ratio that I think is somewhat helpful here in explaining the value of date night. We call it the fun to logistics ratio. And if you think about when you're first dating your partner, the fun to logistics ratio is like 95 to five. You're spending almost all of your time on fun, right? And there are a few logistics you've got to sort out like, hey, you know, what time should we meet at the concert or what concert should we go to or how should we get to the concert, right? Those are the most complicated logistics you have to deal with. Then you get married and you have kids and all of a sudden that ratio basically flips on its head where 95% of the time you're having to figure out like who's going to drive the kid to school and where are they going to school and you know what are we doing for dinner and who's going to the store. All of these things become the air that we breathe in marriage with kids. And for many couples, it becomes so overwhelming and all consuming that there is no fun. It is just all logistics all the time. And so date night is this really cool opportunity where you can create space for fun and adventure. And I think that's really what it's all about. You know, it's not so much about necessarily like going to dinner and a movie. Maybe that's the thing that you enjoy. It's about carving off time where you can go back to that experience that you had when you were dating and you were younger and everything was fun and new and fresh. And there's actually, you know, some theory here from Esther Perel, who's obviously this amazing intimacy expert, where she talks a lot about the fact that intimacy and connection requires time and open space, and in particular, unbounded time. You know, it's very difficult to say, hey, we have a 15-minute window. Let's get really connected and intimate with each other, right? Like that's oh, yes. so it's impossible. <laughs> it's like the, the opposite, right? What we need is just like time for things to happen organically. And so, so that's the opportunity is that y- you can create this kind of open space within which connection and intimacy, which, which are a little bit more mercurial than our sort of efficiency-based doing projects that we're normally doing during the day, are and and so that so that's the basic theory behind date night and then Kaylee maybe you can talk about some of the 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 more practical considerations two practical tips that i think make a huge difference one is in some ways a discipline which is anytime the logistics temptation shows up on date night to parking lot it so this is you're at dinner the drinks have arrived you look at each other and you can feel the part of you that goes should we talk through the Costco list? <laughs> Set it aside. <laughs> it's always about the kids. It totally. The conversation. Should we, talk about, should we talk about Jimmy and the books that they're reading? And so <laughs> really to actually, in order to have that discipline, it can feel cumbersome, but to have a logistics meeting so that date night, mm. you know that that's going to be handled. 
and it doesn't feel like, oh gosh, that's going to live in the ether and I'm going to have to pick it up at 6.22 a.m. right before Mm -hmm. I wake everybody up at 6.30. So have a logistics meeting that's separate from date night. And the other tip is start date night long before date night. Specifically what that means is send your partner a text that says, I'm so excited to go out with you tonight. Or that says, I can't wait to hear about what you've been thinking about. Or if you want to be racy, you can certainly Mm -hmm. send a more provocative text. But don't wait until 7.30 again because that transition time is so tricky. Okay, we get in the car and all of a sudden it's like, be in it. It's date night. (laughs) Quick, switch everything you've been doing for the past like month. You know, you've been in this mom mode and this dad mode and now you have to like be on this like we're a you know a hot couple back in like when we were in our twenties, right? Totally. <laughs> I, I think that we sometimes we forget that as humans we are not light switches. We are much more like dimmers. And mm-hmm. so give yourself some time to warm up to remind yourself, that's right, this is a person who I love. How can I get in that headspace, mm-hmm. heart space? Yeah, I love that. That's such a great I, I I mean, I would never think to do that unless somebody told me, you know, like, hey, like, you, it doesn't have to start when it's supposed to start. You can talk about it for a week beforehand, even if it's like, what should we do? The options are endless, you know? Yes. Um, yeah, I love that. So, okay, so I think it can be hard as, as we've talked about throughout this episode, just, you know, like, connecting because you're not connecting as much as you were before children. And so when you get into that space of, oh, it's just me and you and, oh, we shouldn't be talking about logistics. What the hell are we going to talk about? So, I mean, what would your suggestions be for that for for couples that actually might not even had a date night in a, a year? You know, I mean, I know so many people like that. Like, how do you even get back to that space of, okay, I'm with my partner now. It's been forever. How am I going to like break the ice, you know, essentially? One thing that we do that works really well for us, because we have this transition issue all the time where we'll get to the end of the week and it's Friday and it's been a crazy week and we are just exhausted and our our minds are spinning and all of a sudden we're on date night. We find that it's actually quite difficult to directly transition into something like a dinner where you're sitting across the table from each other, looking at each other, right? And it's like, what should we be talking about? And there's nothing else going on. Yeah, for us, it's actually helpful to go for a walk. That's, That's one of the ways we get grounded and just connected. And so, you know, maybe we'll go out to dinner, but before dinner, if we can walk for 30 minutes or 45 minutes, there is something about just getting in motion and moving and you know, when you're walking, you're not staring at your partner in the face. There's something that's just kind of more relaxing about that. So something like that, that's that's almost like a transitional bridge. You know, if if it's physical activity for the two of you, that could be something or, you know, maybe it's just a, a, a drive or, or whatever it might be. But having that that transition where you just allow yourself to sort of settle into the energy of date night and not feel like it has to just like happen automatically. Right. Right. And I mean, I feel like the go-to date night is always dinner, right? I mean, what else is it, right? It's like, I don't know if it's just something that's kind of ingrained in us, but it's like, okay, we're going on a date night. It, it automatically is, oh, where are you going for dinner? 
You know, it's like you don't think about, oh, what well, we could be doing so many other different things. Like the other day, the other day, my husband and I were talking about, we just love like kind of working out together or maybe setting a goal for ourselves. Like we really want to start doing sprint triathlons. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be a great way to connect on a different level other than, oh, we're going to go out to dinner together. <laughs> you know, I'd love to briefly chat too about the couples that aren't able to leave the house for whatever reason. So say they they don't have childcare nearby, they don't have family that lives nearby, they don't have anybody to come to the house. How can they create that at home? The staycation date, if you will. Some of this is just about doing something different. So novelty is a huge piece of creating intimacy. I think that you were talking about something really interesting, which is, can we learn something together? Can we practice something together? If you're at home, this could be, can we make a meal that we've never made together where it's creative and it's collaborative? Or can we learn, if you drink, can you learn a new cocktail? Some of the importance is around separation. So can the kids be in the den with pizza watching their movie so that you can have a different kind of conversation? And I think in some ways building on the, the question of what do we talk about? We have found having questions provided to us really helpful. We created a set of questions that people are welcome to download for free in our epic date night guide. Even for ourselves, being in this space, creating a number of questions for other couples, sometimes we'll come up empty and we'll just Google a set of date night questions. And if we have already answered them, then great, we skip that one. But it, it gives us something as a catalyst that will lead us into a conversation that's different than if we just accidentally yeah. stumble on the topic at hand. Yeah. I'm sure you have seen these. There's like these intimacy cards, there's relationship cards. I mean, they have them for pretty much anything and everything. We have a set of those and they're great for like breaking the ice, right? Like if you're like, what are we going to talk about? Okay, well, let's, you know, like let's break these out and get into it. And sure enough, before you know it, you're like an hour into a conversation you never knew you would have, <laughs> you know, it's kind of cool. Totally. And the, the surprise of experiencing your partner that way, where an hour goes by and you're learning something totally new is really connecting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that. Okay. So I want to ask you both two questions. I'll have you both answer. They're questions I ask all my interviewees. But before I go into that, is there anything you think we miss that you want to touch upon? I think the only thing that might be worth touching upon briefly is a, a fundamental problem that shows up in many couples around any sort of relationship work. And that is there's often a dynamic where there's an over-contributing partner. Typically it's the female partner and an under-contributing partner. And many people who are over-contributors will come to us and say, I love the idea of working on my marriage. I love the idea of radical generosity and 8080 and all this stuff you're talking about. But my partner is just not going to do that. Right. Like I'm already doing a hundred percent. So it does this whole idea of radical generosity doesn't make any sense. And I think that's worth just getting out there because that is a dynamic that actually Kaylee and I lived. And one of the ways out of that dynamic is to take a step back and just start to look at how are each of us in this relationship participating in this dynamic. So it's easy, it's easy to sort of say like, oh, you know, 
my partner is at fault for this, you know, <laughs> either because they're micromanaging or because they don't do anything, right? Depending on which position you're in. But there's a deeper question there that I think is around like, how am I contributing to this experience? And Kaylee, because you were the over contributor, maybe you can just touch on that because it, it is just such a fundamental obstacle for so many couples. Yeah. And in some ways, I think it's it's a little bit painful. I'll speak for myself. It was for me to do this self-inquiry. To So in our relationship, for instance, I was so mad that Nate wasn't paying attention to our finances. That he was just, he was spending and he wasn't paying attention. And I felt like, you know, we were blowing our budget and I could get really blamey about it. And then we took a step back and I realized, oh, I do all the finances. I never tell him what they are. I haven't shared anything and I won't relinquish any control. Well, shoot, no wonder he doesn't know. And recognizing almost if I were going to, this sounds really crazy to say out loud, but if I were going to train a friend of mine, hey, here is the playbook for how to have your partner not know anything about your finances, overspend, blow your budget and kind of mess up, mess up all your money. I would tell them to do all the things that I was doing. I was like, oh my goodness, this is at least as much on me as it is on anybody else. I would say one of the other ways that we'll see this dynamic show up is sometimes we'll hear the complaint. We certainly did in our interviews where, you know, a mom would say, my husband is so not helpful with the kids. They just, they come home and they rile them up and they wrestle and they play. And then it's my job to put them to bed. And that's, you know, totally unfair. And then I would ask, well, gosh, if you were going to write a recipe or write a training manual for how to have your partner not help and then, you know, make the kids crazy before bed, what would you do? And they're like, oh, well, first I would criticize them for all the ways they tried to help putting them to bed because they were reading the stories wrong and brushing the teeth wrong. And then I would, right, and they would come up with this list of all the ways that, oops, I have certainly participated in creating this dynamic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's switch into these last two yeah. questions. I think we only have like five more minutes. I feel like we could just keep talking about all of these different things. I really want to touch on like safety, adventure cycle and all of that, but everybody just has to read your book, I guess, right? So <laughs> that's where we'll end on that. The first question is, I'm going to alter it slightly because I typically ask, you know, what would be your number one piece of advice for mothers, but I want to switch it to couples. So what would be, and you can both answer separately, like what would be the the biggest piece of advice that you would give? My biggest piece of advice would be to begin thinking intentionally about the mindset and structure of your relationship. And I know that sounds really abstract, but what I mean by that practically is, as we were talking about before, it's so easy to just sort of let go of spending any time or attention on your relationship because there's so much going on and we're exhausted and we have kids and all these different things. So I think that the first tip I would have is really shifting from that place of everything happening by accident, everything happening just sort of, you know, without any intentional control or design to a place where you're really taking a step back together and and asking some of these bigger questions. You know, hey, 
how do we want to structure our life together? What's, what's the design we want to create for our life? What are the values we want to achieve? What does it mean to win together? I think making that shift can really be a huge step in a relationship. Mine would be to remember investing in your marriage is investing in your children because your kids will emulate what they experience with you rather than what you tell them. And so I love the self-check. Would I want our son or daughter to have a relationship like my spouse and I have with each other? Mm. Yeah. And you know what? I fall into, I still fall into this a little bit less because I've recognized it, but, and I'm sure some people can relate, but the second you have children, your whole mindset flips from, oh, I love this person next to me who helped me, you know, make these wonderful children to 100% of attention on the children and what they need. And it slowly drifts away from the person that brought you to this family model to begin with and who's the most important part, you know? And so I always, I have to go back to that mindset of, no, like the person next to me is the most important. And the way that we show love is how the kids will eventually, right? Showing them and modeling this, this, you know, this relationship for them will help them in what they're seeking out in the future. And it's so important. And I think it's easy to forget, especially for me as a mom, just just to forget like, okay, no, like I have to prioritize this person, you know, because it's easy to prioritize the kids all of the time because they need so much, you know? Yeah. Okay. So last question, and I want you both to answer this one as well. So if you were to cook one meal for your family that everyone would eat, that's relatively quick and easy, what would it be, Nate? My go-to meal would be burgers and sweet potato fries with a salad on the side. That is just the standard, we don't know what we're doing, easy meal. Everybody loves it. It's a. It's the winner in our household. Mine is even less adventurous. Mine is make this salad and buy the rotisserie chicken and you can eat it right there. The drumsticks make the kiddos happy. If you want to shred it and be adventurous, you can, but it's quick, it's easy, it's available. Yes. Love it. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. I'm I'm so glad that both of you could join me today and just talk this through. I hope that it's helpful for everybody listening. Thank you so much for having us. It's been a pleasure to be and here. Thank you so much for being such a voice of inspiration for this whole community. Really appreciate talking with you. Thank you, Kaylee. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug, unwind, and have a little fun. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends.
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.